down in here sitting down, shouldn't we? I keep putting the, the books under here and they keep bringing more. I'm going to run out of room here in a minute. Well, what a joy it is to be in the Lord's house together and uh, to look at his word together this morning, sing praises to him. For those of you who prayed for a lot of snow, God answered your prayer with abundance. Aren't you glad he can do exceedingly abundantly what you ask or think? For those of you who were praying against snow, it's no reflection on God's favor towards you. He still loves you. We don't measure that in snow, right? So he answered your prayer. He just said no. If you have your Bible, open them with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at the latter part of this chapter, verses 25 through 29 this morning as we consider an unshakable kingdom. I'm going to begin reading verse 25, Hebrews 12, 25. We've been going through a series through the book of Hebrews, and uh, what an encouragement it has been. It takes 45 minutes to read through the letter in its entirety, and uh, so if you want to go home and read through it, it's one sermon, Uh, and we've taken a little bit longer than that to go through it, Uh, but how rich it is to, uh, to look at what God has given to us, his word. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who has warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of yourself, the gift of your Son. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let me begin with a question and just ask you, do you believe your Bible? How many of you have a Bible with you? Just raise it up, hold it up there. I'm not going to ask you to repeat anything. Isn't that nice? Do you believe it? Do you believe the historical accounts that the Bible gives to us, that there was a Jericho and there was a conquest into Canaan? Do you believe there was a Peter and a Paul and they were apostles and they went about preaching the gospel? Do you believe uh, the history that the Bible has given to us? Well, do you believe the promises it gives? Maybe you struggle with that, but do you believe that all through the Bible and the promises there, do you believe them to be true, trustworthy, reliable? What about the supernatural stuff? Uh, Rebecca and I were talking yesterday about Jonah being swallowed with a well. Maybe you swallowed by a well. Maybe you uh, struggle with that. I told her I would believe it if Jonah swallowed the well and it told us that. (laughs) But do you struggle with the supernatural stuff? You know, Jesus feeding 5,000 with a little lunch or God creating all of this out of nothing by the power of his word. We heard that even this morning. What about Jesus walking on water or being raised from the dead? Do you, do you believe what the Bible teaches us, what it tells us? Isn't it true that what we believe, what we believe about God's word, 
has a fundamental imprint or impact on our lives, how we live day in and day out. What we believe to be true, what we believe to be right, what we believe to be sure are those things that, that imprint our lives. They, they direct us, they carry us, they, they lead us along, they stir up hope and excitement, they, they make us wonder and sometimes fear the Bible and our faith. What we believe to be true, whether we believe in God or whether we don't believe in God, has a dramatic impact on who we are as people. A dramatic impact. And I would say that's not only true about what we've talked about, the supernatural stuff and promises that's given to us and the historical accounts and, and, and all the other things that we've mentioned, but I would say that is equally true about the end of things. Oftentimes we look at it in the literature of apocalyptic uh, literature in the book of Daniel and, uh, and Ezekiel and, and all the other, uh, Ezra and all the, not Ezra, but all the other books that we kind of scratch our head and wonder what in the world is going on. And yet even there, God is trying to speak to us and remind us about what he is going to do. We read in Peter, and just to add to that, let me just read a psalm for you that the Bible tells us in Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, speaking of God, and the heavens are the work of your hands, and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Well, we look at God's judgment on the earth, uh, and we look at the end times in different, through different lenses. There's much of the subject to talk about as you get into the book of Revelation and be confused by. And some of you, as you open up Revelation, you kind of wonder what in the world's going on all the way from beginning to the end. Well, one thing we are sure of, that Jesus wins in the end. Christ will come back, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And yet, the, at the response of this, and we are, as a, as a people, fascinated with apocalyptic themes I don't know how many movies they make continually of the end of the world and and this one's it and that one's it. It's either a meteor or the, I think they got one now, the moon is alive or something like that coming out. And we fascinate or we're fascinated and fantasize about what it will be at the end of things. In fact, we even stir our own hearts up with fear and the pandemic and, and global warming and all the other things of that we're killing the earth and, and it's all going to come to an end. Well, the Bible does tell us, despite where you land on those topics politically, the Bible does tell us there is an appointed time for everything, even the end of the world. And it's within God's power and it's within his purpose to bring all things to an end. All things to an end is what we read in the Psalms. Heaven and earth will wear out like a garment, but you, O Lord, will remain forever. When Peter, we see, no doubt, when we talk about it, good for entertainment in, in the movie industry and in books that are, uh, that are published. But, but when we really come and sit down and think about what God will do or the judgment or, or his second coming, Christ's second coming, we tend to have several different responses. In Peter, it was the response of forgetfulness bringing to remembrance those things which they should have remembered and, and the presence of those who were scoffers, who were scoffing at it, even saying the same thing forever. 
I can remember growing up with tent meetings where uh, passionate evangelists would, uh, would uh, they make you scared to go to sleep at night. I mean, I heard one guy say one time, and it was, I was young, I didn't understand. He's like, I just feel like one running all my credit cards up so the devil can pay them off, you know. I think he missed the point of the coming of Christ. But nevertheless, there was this expectancy, this, this anticipation that Christ would come. And all that we see, that we put our hope in, our trust in, all that we, we look and admire or intimidated by will, will all dissolve away, vanish away. There will be some things that remain, but not often the things which we think of or the things which the world puts stock in. There are the doubters and scoffers and forgetfulness. People. And it is this doctrine of the second coming or the doctrine of the judgment of God here that he, he, tend, he is bringing to warn us to move the disciples and to move us to, to continue on faithfully in the time and the season that God has given us. I want to look at this this morning, verse 26 and 27, first of all, and consider with you a future shaking, a future Shaking. Notice verse 26 says, At that time, he's speaking of this escape or escaping him who warns from heaven. At that time, when there will be no escape, his voice shook the earth, but now has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain if you read exodus chapter number 19 when god descended upon mount sinai the bible says that the earth or the mountain trembled at the at the manifestation of god and his presence it's the same idea of the of an earthquake a dramatic shaking and rending of the earth at the presence of god as he displayed his law and his holiness before his people. It was a traumatic event. And yet here we see not only the shaking there, the, the prophets in the Old Testament use that same image and illustration of a future time of judgment. It's a description of God coming in power and might and the earth itself reeling at what he will do. Isaiah thirteen thirteen, the Bible says, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. I've never lived through an earthquake, never experienced an earthquake, but you can imagine the terror, the horror with the earth itself shaking underneath your feet. Isaiah goes on and says in verse or chapter number 24, describing uh, the judgment of God in these terms, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It gives us that image of, of wringing out the earth itself. God will come and his visitation upon humanity and humanity's sin will be a traumatic global catastrophe. He goes on in that very same chapter, verses 19 and 20. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaking. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Speaking of the effect of God's judgment on the world and its inhabitants 
the earth reeling. Here in our text in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, is a quote from Haggai uh, chapter 2, verse number 6. Haggai was a prophet called by God to, to stir the people uh, to get back to rebuilding the temple. They had come back from exile from Babylon after 70 years, and God had given them favor and resources to build the temple, and they got started. There was opposition. That's how things happen, right? And you just stop. So God raised up Haggai and, and other prophets to come along and to spur on these, these exiles, these people who have returned back, and to continue to build the temple. He speaks of uh, chapter number two, a glory which fill the temple, which will fill the temple uh, uncompared to what Solomon's temple looked like. Yet in the middle of that, he gives us this verse here in verse number six. So he says, for the, thus says the Lord of hosts, yes, one more, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Here he's speaking to the people, reminding them that he will come in judgment. He will come and require of the nations their sin and their misdeeds. Not only the nations, but he will come and that the effect will have an effect upon creation itself. Now some scholars dis, uh, disagree with what he's talking about in our context. Uh, in one, we, we have the understanding that this may be what is referred to uh, the event in A.D. 70. Many notable scholars believe that this is God moving away from uh, moving us away from the man-made things such as the temple sacrifices and the priestly system. God would do away with those things that were elementary, those things that were meant to be part-time or temporary and bringing in what is permanent and what is substantial, the gospel. It was a horrible event and as Josephus records in his writings that the blood of the slain ran down the temple stairs as a stream, bodies sliding down the steps with it. The soldiers, in their, their greed for revenge and, and lust for blood, would step over the victims or, of the slain or step over the corpse of the slain. Uh, the slain were more in number than the soldiers in one place, Josephus says. The temple itself being set on fire and utterly destroyed, uh, fulfilling Jesus' words in Matthew chapter number 24. It was a horrible event, doing away with those things that were not to remain at the coming of the second covenant. There's something to be said about that, but I believe in the context, he wants us to look to something further. I believe the passage here isn't just doing away with the temple sacrifice. And, and that system, he had already dealt with those things earlier in the book of Hebrews, saying that there was this one final sacrifice for sin, one final high priest for the people of God. I believe here he's speaking to a future time of judgment, a shaking of the earth, a rending of the heavens that will be permanent and lasting. Something which the book of Revelation defines for us in chapter number 6, verse number 12. At the opening of the sixth seal, the Bible says, I look and behold, there was a great earthquake. and The sun became black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for a great day of their wrath has come who can stand. I think this is a very warning that he's giving the people here, the very shaking that he is referring to once more god will come and take away all those things that are temporary all those things that are earthly all those things that are stained with sin and under the curse going back to what he says in the book of psalms they will roll up like a garment but you O lord will remain forever It is this very warning that he gives in in the context with the rest of the word of God trying to urge them and and persuade them and encourage them to, to make sure that they don't let such a great salvation slip. For how will you escape? Well, escape what? The destruction of the temple? No, he's speaking of something greater than what will happen in Jerusalem. The destruction, the doing away with creation as it is. The judgment of God. Constantly he reminds them in chapter number 4 about rest and about inheritance. And eventually chapter number 9 he tells them point blank that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. His concern is not the, the immediate. It isn't just the moment. That was the problem with Esau mentioned earlier who, who took what was lasting, what was eternal, what was significant and sold it away for just momentary relief. His concern is for that which is permanent. Their faith, not their ease in the moment, but their faith in eternity. Their destination, how will they fare when God comes again and shakes the earth? And so he reminds them it is a global cataclysmic event and Jesus words about the second coming bring soberness to us in Matthew chapter number 24 and sometimes a lot of debate along with that one thing is clear in chapter number 25 in Matthew is that that he he is coming and we are to be ready If you go through the several parables he gives in Matthew 25, the first one is about the foolish virgins who are not ready at the return or at the coming of the bridegroom. For us as a people, for us as a church, the exhortation about him shaking the world and the judgment to come is be ready because it will come. Be ready. But he goes on and speaks about servants and we're to be active stewards trusted with our master's goods. God will come, will shake the earth, but until then we're to be ready, we're to be active, and we're reminded at the end that he will reward at his return. That is this teaching that he sets verse 25 on. The application really is the beginning of of this section, verse number 25. The exhortation is there. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If he is coming to to shake the earth and do away with all the things that are temporary, all the things that are permanent, take great care how you've heard him and the consequences of what you did with what he said. 
He begins this very book by telling us that God has spoken in the past to the fathers through the prophets and God is speaking to us today in his son. And, and now he's saying in verse number 25 and coming to a climax, be careful, take heed how you've heard him, what you did with the revelation that he has given. Take care that you don't refuse him who is speaking from heaven. He's using that language there in verse number 25 that if those under the Mosaic law suffered condemnation or consequences of their rebellion, how much severe is the consequence of our rebellion when God has spoken to us through his son so clearly and so, so for all of us in here so frequently? And the truth is you won't escape. There is nowhere to escape to. Even as we've seen in Revelation, those crying out to the rocks to fall upon us and mountains to hide us from him, but there is no hiding place from him once we've refused him. So he's saying to them, be wise about this. Take care how you've heard him. Do not refuse him who is speaking to you now from heaven. That's a very simple application for us and a very needed one. What have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the message of Christ that you've heard over and over? Some of you here, uh, have you received it or have you refused it? Have you embraced it as your own, as a promise to you, as the forgiveness of your sin? Or is it something that you've, you've continued held off at arm's length? Well, we should give heed that we do not refuse him who is speaking because we will not escape. If we rebel against he who warns from heaven. But he goes on and speaks not only of the shaking. But he speaks of a firm foundation. There is a future shaking. But there is hope in the middle of it. And, and you, you have to love that in the middle of verse number 28. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be what? You see what he's doing don't you? There's a shaking which is taking place, a shaking so violent, so ultimate that heaven and earth will be shaken out of its place. All temporary, all, all cursed and earthly things will be done away with, but that doesn't mean everything will be done away with. There will be something that remains, and that is which is eternal. That's what he's saying here. There will be some things that cannot be shaken. What a joy it is, but it does seem like a paradox, doesn't it, to be a Christian message. What do I mean by that? Well, as we look at the world and we see the church in, in the world, it doesn't seem to be one of those things that boasts of a permanent structure. Always and constantly in, in, in different parts of our world and in and under different sufferings and persecutions, the church seems that fragile thing that is resting on, on thin ice. Constantly trying to be stomped out. Constantly bombarded. Pastors facing jail. Laws forbidding against the church preaching the gospel. Constantly being reproached. It is seen really in this world in weakness. Uh, maybe you don't think of that way, and I know we have the promises in Matthew chapter number 16, but, but just by our outward observation, the strength in the world doesn't always immediately bring our minds to the church. Uh, 
I say that because here is a group of Christians who are facing suffering in Rome. Mistreated by their own kinsmen will soon be put on display by Nero uh, as lights for his feast. Does it seem like a place of strength? A place where we might find confidence? And yet it is to the church that he is speaking to. And, and not only does it show itself in weakness, but the Bible says it shows itself in foolishness. We get that in 1 Corinthians. The preaching of the gospel is, is a stumbling block to the Jews, which they were experiencing, and foolishness to the Gentiles, which they were experiencing. And we at, at, at some times have seemed wise, and we've made some wise uh, investments in society and in human history but let's be honest if you look at just the general doctrine of what we believe the foundations of our faith and and what the bible teaches we seem pretty crazy people don't raise from the dead rise from the dead it just doesn't happen you don't take a small lunch and feed five thousand people in a world where, where we, we continue to grow, we're continuing to educate people, the, the, even the common sense of the Bible, which should be a given in most cultures, is, is seen as archaic and, and just plumb crazy. The world is continually learning and never coming to the knowledge. The church stands in its midst, not only bearing weakness, but bearing a mark of foolishness. Human dignity and purpose, dying to self instead of promoting self. But I want to say it's also outdated. I read an article some time ago, the fear that was going on in France. As Notre Dame's cathedral, or the cathedral Notre Dame, that's how I say it in Tennessee. I don't know how you say it, but anyway, when I thought of that, but... It was set on fire, some of you know that. So they're remodeling. They're giving it a, a facelift and an update. And, and the fear of, this is France, the fear of the, the people was that it's going to be a woke cathedral, whatever that means, right? New modern art coming in and lights that, that come and, and put stuff on the wall and, and all kinds of that. And some of the critique and argument was that here is this 800 and some year old structure that is, uh, is going to be the Disneyland of France. Of course, they meant that tongue-in-cheek. You know that. But sometimes we can see ourselves in the Bible. The world looks at us as something outdated. Maybe Christianity has served a purpose in America, sometimes back in Western society, but absolutely has no place now. It is one of those things that your great-great-grandfathers used to do or grandmothers and and all that, we're wiser now. It is to a, a church that is experiencing the effect of all of this that he is speaking and reminding them that that is not how things are ultimately. That is not how things will always be. What he has given to us and what he has promised to us, though we may seem fragile and ready to pass away, is strength and stability that this world cannot offer us. Security which, which this world in all of its entrapments, in all of its pleasures, in all of its offers cannot give us. And that is security that at the end, at the end, there is life. 
There's acceptance. There's a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That is what he's speaking of here to these people. Jesus shows us this in Matthew chapter number 7 as he gives the illustration of a man building his house upon the sand and the winds came and the floods came and what happened to the house? It was destroyed. So is everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them. But there is another house and the winds come and, the, and, and all the things happen to it. The rains come and the floods come. And the Bible says that that house stands sure because it's built upon a rock. It's on a foundation. And, and he's telling a group of people, telling us this morning that there is confidence that we have a sure footing. Not just in this life and, and not just right now, but a sure footing that will remain forever for eternity. Because our foundation is Jesus Christ himself. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. No other foundation can any man lay except this, Jesus Christ. Our assurance of our salvation, our assurance of our acceptance before God, our assurance of eternity, that when God comes to judge the living and the dead, that we will stand forgiven and accepted, rest in Christ who died for us and secured us. That's what the gospel offers to us. We've received an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken because we've received acceptance in that kingdom by one who was not able to be defeated. Wounded? Yeah, he died. But he rose again. He could not be defeated. And so, beloved, I know the chaos that we face in the world around us is fearful. I took a list and almost was going to go through it. I'm not going to go through that. You read the headlines and you get it 24 hours a day and on your news feed and all the other places you get it of all the terrible things that we see going on around us. Yet in the middle of all of that, I'd rather just tell you and remind you that the kingdom of God will stand. The kingdom of God will stand in those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a great confidence. It will stand because our foundation is sure I love what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal that the Lord knows those who are his. That's good. Something good to remind yourselves of. To think about. Well, you don't know what's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine. I know, but the, but the foundation of God stands sure. He knows those who are his. You see, we have that great comfort this morning in Christ. But we have confidence in a kingdom that cannot be shaken because of our king. Because of our foundation. Because he is our king and he cannot be defeated. You know, I was thinking of this. Hezekiah was a godly king. The Bible says there was no one like him before him or after him. He served the Lord, and it said he held fast to the Lord. God used him greatly. But, you know, just like kingdoms in this world, just like rulers, just like this, I know it's a far stretch, just like politicians that we like, if there are any, (laughs) they're short-lived. They're short-lived, and we know that because we say back in the good old days, don't we? Are back under so and so. 
And we feel the weight of that transition, that changing, that, that shifting, that constantly someone else coming in. Hezekiah, a godly man, a, a man who, who God blessed and used mightily, and yet his son was one of the most wicked kings in all of Judah. But we have confidence that what God has done through Jesus Christ will last because Christ himself will last. There is no change of power. There is no January 6th or whatever day it is. There is Christ and his rule. I know it isn't 6th, it's another day, but you can figure that out later. You see, he has given and promised us a kingdom with a king whose reign will never end whose reign will never end, whose foundation is sure. What a joy it is this morning to just read verse 28 and be reminded that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let me just give you a fitting response. We've already mentioned the application to the warning that he's given to us in verse 25. There's a warning not to refuse him who is speaking, but but to us who have received this kingdom, to us who have been given access into his presence to those who, who are allowed to come to Mount Zion, who, find, who have found the favor with God, he says, naturally, let us then be grateful. Let us be thankful. Not because your life's all fine and dandy the way it is right now. Not because necessarily tomorrow, which you're anticipating and that you may dread, will go the way you want it to go. And not because of, of whatever you want to put in the blank. But he says there is something that, that, that carries us beyond all of that. Our disappointments, our, de- our depressions, our discouragement, all of that. And he says that Thanksgiving is rooted in the fact that what God has done and promised to us will not end. That we have an anticipation that though our, our, our world suffers and though our body is decaying away, that what God has promised is eternal and forever. And that there will be a new heavens and a new earth and praise God a new body. And that's what he's promised to us. That is the source of our thanksgiving. Not necessarily immediate pleasure or gratification. But that which is to come. That which we hold on to and anticipate and look for by faith. But I like to think that we can be thankful and praise God for the momentary pleasure and joy he gives us in the moment the peace that passes all understanding the presence to remind us that he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us the fellowship that we have one with another all of these blessings reminding to us that that is just the tip of the iceberg of what god has prepared for those who love him he tells us that we should be thankful we should live serve Give, love, repent. All of that with a heart of thanksgiving. We should allow the reality of what awaits us and what God has promised and has in store for us is ours and secure. Let me just say this. If you don't have that hope, if you don't have that assurance, you can. That's what the Bible has given us all of this for so that we might have confidence that that one day... 
one day we will stand in his presence as sons, forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to talk to someone after the service. I'd love to take the Bible and show you how you can have that kind of hope and confidence. And yet here he says to us, to believers, to the church, he says, let us be thankful. Not only let us be thankful, verse number 28, that we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken, but let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Uh, some translations say the word could be worship, the other word could be serve, uh, depending on uh, who you read after. Let us offer to God acceptable service or acceptable worship. Uh, I want to go back and just go back to what I said at the beginning of this. If it is true that heaven and earth will pass away, God will come and put an end to an end of all things that are temporary, that are earthly, that are cursed, all rebellion against his rule and his throne. And how should that affect us as believers? There is a joyfulness. There's a thanksgiving that should be a part of that. But there's also, there's also a soberness that it should produce in us. I'm thinking about maybe your loved one, a friend or a sister or a brother, a child or a grandchild who's not walking with Christ, one who, is, uh, one who has rebelled against him. Ought it not bring us a little soberness to life? A reminder that while we have this hope and we revel, we're encouraged by this hope, that we live with the understanding, we serve with the understanding, not all people have that same hope and we should not be content with it just as it is. What a terrible thing it would be for a church to be satisfied that we have the hope and and yet there's multitudes that don't have the hope and yet we're content to do nothing. The very coming of Christ teaches us not only to run and find shelter ourselves, but as as uh, was read this morning about prayer, so it should encourage us and motivate us and stir us and spur us on to, to, to invite others, bring others, preach to others, share with others, pray for others, give to others, care for others. Because they'll be swept up in one way or the other. They'll be swept up in the glory uh, unspeakable and, and the joy of the Lord. They'll be swept up in the fierceness of his shaking and, and that will be it. There is no part two or sequel. Well, I think how often I need in my own heart to be reminded of the coming of the Lord to stir again my zeal for others who don't have that same hope. That's why we send missionaries, because Christ is coming. That's why we pray for others. In some sense, I remember being in the military and had a very traumatic experience. And as soon as I got back to, to a place of safety, I went to a phone. I called my mom and said, thanks for praying. For some reason, I realized I didn't have enough sense to pray for myself in that state. And that's a lot of times what we do as a church. We hold up. We pray for others. We, we care and we give and we share. Even as we talk about the judgment of God in, 
in Second Peter in chapter number 3, we see why his delay is, don't we? Because he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, that God would give us that, that passion, that desire to, to spread the gospel and, and to bring as many in as we can. I know the work is God's, the, the fruit and the, the produce is God's. He gives the increase, but there is sowing and there is watering that we are called to do. Jude, he speaks about those who are hating to see the garments stained with fire, stained with the smoke, pulling them, snatching them from the fire. Well, that God would again stir our zeal and our desire to see people come to know Christ, come to experience the forgiveness of sin. And he, Jesus' words when he says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. We as a church, when we come to understand the coming of Christ, we, we come to understand it with joy and anticipation, but also with burden, with a burden of those who don't have that same hope. Don't you see that, church? Don't you feel that? Don't you need to be reminded of that? How easy it is to think tomorrow, 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 and forget about that one day there will be no tomorrow. You talk to Matt Beatty, he reminds you often, doesn't he? And he says, maybe today the Lord will come back. And it is true. All that God would give us passion, a desire, a burden to see people come to know him. Come to experience the joy and the fullness and the acceptance that we ourselves have experienced. And that's why he's left us here, right? To spread the gospel, to spread the good news. To give to others that which we've received freely that they too may share in the joy and the benefit and the glory of Christ. Well, there is great comfort in knowing that we've been made part of an unshakable kingdom. And there's an anticipation as we wait for Christ's return that that, that which looks weak and foolish, that which looks obsolete, will stand in all of its glory as it radiates the glory of its Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, the church. The new heaven, the new earth. And while we await it, church, I guess if I could just go back to what I just said. Let us be busy. There's a lot of work to do and a little time to do it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us. God, thank you for this word that you have encouraged our hearts with. An unshakable kingdom. And we have been moved by the, by the unstable thread of society, not just in America, but all over the world. As we see nations, and peoples, and governments, and societies just in upheaval. Lord, these are just, these are just birth pains of what is to come. Lord, thank you that you've given us assurance and hope that, that even in the midst of all of that, there are, there are things which stand sure, the gospel and what you have done in us through Jesus Christ, what you promise us. But we praise you for that. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be busy doing what you've called us to do. Help us to be unsatisfied and unsettled until you return. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.